Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. Almost all of our scripture for this series will be coming from the New Testament because that's when the Holy Spirit came upon the people in a brand new way. And after the death, the resurrection, and the triumphant ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, people started to receive these spiritual gifts as part of God's presence with us in a whole new way. And so today, out of one of the letters attributed to the Apostle Peter, we are hearing about direction that was being given to those first communities, those first families of faith, about what to do now. And part of it was recognizing that every single group, even underneath the auspices of the church, have gifts and things to offer and things to receive. And so the opening line about I as an elder am encouraging you as, as serving as a witness is about Peter taking his authority and then granting it to others and saying you have been called and there's a word that you might not have really heard a lot and that's called exhort exhortation is something that isn't spoken out a lot other than the church and so it is one of those spiritual gifts that often people just don't even think about now, if you've had the opportunity to take the spiritual gift inventory, and a lot of you have and have been so gracious as to share your results with me, then what you've discovered is that you might have gifts that you didn't even think of, much less recognize, and some people were a little terrified. They were like, does this mean I'm supposed to perform miracles? No, 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 we'll get to that. That's next week. But this week, we're going to talk about shepherding and exhortation. These are nurturing gifts. And sometimes in the history of Christianity, people have prioritized gifts or given some gifts a higher status because they were seen as outreach gifts, gifts that would help to build the kingdom by bringing new people to Jesus Christ. But every single one of the gifts that are in the spiritual inventory are necessary and vital and important. And nurturing gifts are crucial if you're going to nurture disciples who then can go out into the world and make more disciples. So these nurturing gifts are so fundamentally crucial to the body of Christ. So what is shepherding? It's not just for pastors, but what is shepherding? Shepherding is the gift of mentoring and providing spiritual guidance to others to help them develop in the discipline and faith formation. Shepherds take an active and individualized interest in the life of faith of others. Shepherds share from their own faith journey to make the way easier for others. Shepherds are good at asking provocative questions, recommending appropriate resources and experiences, and helping people find their own way to the next level of their faith development. So shepherds have traditionally found places for their gifts in such as Sunday school classes. If you grew up going to Sunday school, then you might remember that not only did you have teachers, but sometimes there was a Sunday school superintendent. Some of you may have even served in that role yourselves. That's a wonderful shepherding place to be in. So as being a teacher, that's an opportunity to shepherd a group, but it's also for small group leadership. Sometimes the biggest thing that can come out of small group leadership is not necessarily teaching, 
but that you are helping to gather a group together. You are helping them to stay connected, to forge relationships across lines that might otherwise divide, and to help to hold them together and accountable to one another. And so shepherding becomes very vital in allowing the church, as it continues to grow, to still have a place where people are known and feel beloved. Otherwise, you can feel like you're just a face or a number instead of being a person, beloved and of sacred worth. And so shepherds become very important. Many shepherds uh, who have that gift also serve as congregational care ministers. There's two types of care that the church outlines generally. The first is pastoral care, which is done by clergy. The other is congregational care. And a healthy, vital church, a body of Christ, will have both to make sure that you have the connectional piece that is happening through congregational care, as well as some of the triage and the vitality that comes through pastoral care. But they work in tandem. You need multiple shepherds for the flock, not just one. And if you remember, God has a soft spot in God's heart for shepherds. If you go back to the Old Testament, that was pretty much the premier vocation of people. Abraham, shepherd. Isaac, shepherd. Jacob, shepherd. Moses was a second career shepherd. Lots of shepherds. In fact, some of the, um, the prophets were even shepherds. And so shepherding, that idea of bringing people together, not just sheep and goats, but bringing people together and helping to hold them together in the family of faith is not just biblical, but it's vital and it's important. And God prioritizes that by giving people the gift to do just that. And you may have that gift or you may have the gift of exhortation. What is exhortation? Exhortation is the gift that is manifest in people who offer encouragement, wise counsel, unflagging support, and empowerment. Those who exhort stay focused on helping people maximize their own potential and live from their own gifts and skills. Exhorters help people feel good about themselves, build confidence, and not grow discouraged. Often those with the gift of exhortation make others feel good just by being present. You ever had someone in your life where if you're having a bad day, you know you could go be around them and that they would lift you up? They would make you feel good about yourself. When you feel down like you are a failure or you have really messed up, they're the ones that look at you and say, I still love you and you are still awesome. They are people who help to build us back up even when we ourselves are tearing ourselves down. Because in this world... The goal of the world is not to build you up. The world is very active in trying to tear you down. Sometimes we even celebrate that. My grandfather was a Marine, and he used to brag about the fact that when he went into the Marine Corps and they sent him to boot camp, they broke him down, took him all the way down to the beginning, and then they built him back up, bigger, faster, stronger. And it was like, I don't know if I like the whole like breaking you down kind of thing. That doesn't sound so great to me. But God isn't trying to break you down. God is literally trying to build you up, trying to help you see that you can be confident in the gifts that you have. You can be confident in who you are because who you are is a beloved child of God. And that is perfect for what lies ahead of you. It's not always about who has the highest education or who has the most credentialing. Oftentimes it's about who recognizes who they are in Jesus Christ what God has given them through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and who is willing to try, to try to use those gifts. So exhortation becomes really important. We all need those people who see value in us, who see potential, 
who help to keep us on the path that is right. I know that in my life there have been multiple times where someone who had exhortation was the only thing that kept me on the path to where I am right now as an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. Because there's lots of pitfalls when you have a vision or a call or a dream and you head towards it and things don't go your way. And I'm not talking about those little mishaps that happen along the way in life. I'm talking about major diversions that happen or being routed in an entirely different direction and going, I don't want to go that way. I'm supposed to be going this way. For me, that happened when I was getting ready to graduate from my undergraduate studies and go to seminary, and I applied to Duke University because that's a United Methodist Seminary there at Duke, and everybody in Virginia applies to Duke. That's where bishops came from. It had a lot of prestige. I mean, it was Duke, and so I applied to Duke, and a lot of my mentors and my colleagues and the people that I knew were very excited that I had applied to Duke, and they were just convinced that Duke was going to be great for me and my seminary experience and that it would make me a better pastor. I applied to Wesley, which is in northern, uh, actually outside of northern Virginia in D.C., because the Virginia Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church does not actually have a United Methodist Seminary within our geographical borders. So you either have to go north to Washington, D.C. to go to Wesley, or you have to go south to Duke, and those are the two closest. I also applied to one in New Jersey called Drew because at the time, my husband's family was from New York and New Jersey, and it's like, well, we might as well just have another one in the mix. Well, I was putting all my eggs in the Duke basket. I wanted to go to Duke because that's just where I thought I was supposed to go. That's where the people that I respected and that I wanted to emulate went. And so I wanted to go to Duke. Well, Duke waitlisted me. And you think, okay, well, that's not a no. It's a wait list. It's like a not yet or a maybe. But to me, it was like being told, you are a fool. And you thought that you had what it took. And look, you do not. And it was hard. I mean, it was devastating. And then even the people that were so convinced that I was exactly what Duke wanted were confused and going, I, I, I don't understand what happened here. And then they were trying to encourage me to kind of hold fast, like you're just, you're just waitlisted. But then it didn't take too long for a thin envelope to show up from Duke. And that envelope told me that no, they were rejecting my application and I was officially not accepted. And I thought I had gotten it all wrong. I was thinking, I'm not even called to ministry. God obviously doesn't want me to do this. I have been wasting my time and my life because as someone once pointed out, if this pastoring thing doesn't turn out for you, then you've got a really useless undergraduate degree. Thanks for the encouragement. And so you start to question everything. You question who you are. You question who you are in God. And that's when you need someone who is an exhortationist for you, someone who sees value in you, who says, no, just because Duke said no does not mean that you don't have a call. Just because Duke told you no does not mean that you don't have a place that you're supposed to be. And anyone who is a fan of UNC will tell you that all day. And so what happened was, it kind of left me in this kind of groggy, foggy state. And here I am trying to wrap up my undergraduate degree. And one night, I was sitting at my desk, and it was 2 a.m., because, you know, sometimes you got to stay up late and do those papers, and anybody who stayed up to 2 a.m. knows, like, that's a holy time in the morning. And so I was staying up late, and my beloved cat was hanging out with me, 
and he is a British short hair. And so if you've ever seen Alice in Wonderland, you'll know the Cheshire Cat is designed after this breed. Big old eyes, little jowls, big old mouth. And Motor, my cat, was just kind of sitting like a chicken. You know how they do where they kind of this, and then he kind of puddled. And he was sitting there, and I hit critical mass right about 2 a.m., and I kind of sat back in my chair, and I looked at my cat, and there was something poking out from underneath my cat. And so I, like, you know, pulled it out from the cat, because God forbid he should get up and give it to me. So I pulled it out from underneath him, and it was an envelope from Drew, the seminary in New Jersey. And in the course of this, I had been accepted to Wesley in D.C., but it just didn't seem like it had no glamour. It was just, it was like, great. So now I'm just going to have to go where whoever accepts me. And so at 2 a.m., I pull out this letter from Drew, and I open it up, and to my shock, not only did I get into Drew, but they're offering me a full tuition scholarship. They're offering me to go on their dime and save $120,000. And that's a moment. It was such a moment that I like called and woke up all my family and my friends, which your parents love to be awakened at two in the morning by a screaming child who can't quite get out that everything's okay, but that she got into seminary anyway, and guess what? I don't have to pay for it. And so once my mother found out I wasn't in the hospital, it was okay. But it was, it was one of those things where you just had to call and tell people like, oh my gosh, God has a place for me. God has a place. And I called my mentor, who was the one that was so sure that, that Duke was the place for me. And I called him at 2.30 in the morning, and let me tell you, he was very gracious about me calling him at 2.30 in the morning. And once he heard what I said, he said, you know what? Of course. Of course. It's the book of Acts. It's the book of Acts. God has shut one door that you might go through this. God has sent you there. And this is where you need to be. Now, you know, Drew didn't carry all the prestige of Duke. Drew didn't, you know, seem to have all of the glitz and the glamour. But I'll tell you what, that was where I needed to be because right after I got accepted into Drew, we found out that my mother-in-law had breast cancer and that I was going to be in New Jersey and be there for her when she was going through treatments and when she needed people to be with her. Look what God can do. And the other thing is that God has an even bigger plan because once I got to New Jersey, I'll tell you, it wasn't North Carolina and it wasn't all that I thought seminary would be, you know, because it had that really nice turnpike flavor to it. And so as I got there, sometimes you go, okay, God, what in the world were you thinking? Why am I here? And God ended up redeeming that for me by letting me see for myself that Drew was so far north that it was completely different from the Methodism that I had been born into and raised in and known and loved and served in in Virginia. It was entirely different, and I needed to see that that existed. I needed to see that that existed so that I wouldn't do that here. And that's really important. Sometimes those negative lessons are important. And God was like, you need to come here, you know, because I went to seminary with a bunch of people that couldn't quote scripture. I went to seminary with a bunch of people that didn't even know the background of the Torah. And so for me, it was like, don't you guys know what you're reading? Don't you know? I mean, I don't want to be like, God sent me there to teach people. But that's not what happened. God sent me there to be in relationship with people. God sent me there that I might learn from them and they could learn from me that together we would grow in our faith 
wisdom. And so that's what God was doing. But I needed my exhortationist pastor to be like, this is it. This is, yes, yes, of course. Of course, this is where you need to be. And you need to go there and you need to stay the course. And because of that, I was able to do it. Because all of those days and nights of questioning myself and thinking, I got it wrong. Because I'll tell you, it's hard to find a lot of traditional and historical precedent for who I am and what I do. Even though the United Methodist Church has only been in existence since 1968 and has been ordaining women since it came into existence, and even though there have been versions and iterations of the Methodist Church that have been ordaining women since the 50s, the vast majority of Methodism throughout life since the 1700s have not had women as clergy. And so to be constantly questioning, maybe I'm wrong, Maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm just supposed to be a Sunday school teacher. Maybe this is not who I'm supposed to be. But to have people that have been gifted with not only shepherding, but also exhortation as a part of my family of faith who were a part of my life, who continue to see things and call me into account and make me hold fast and encourage me and uplift me and uphold me, that made all the difference in the world. Because back in the 1700s, when John Wesley, one of the original founders of Methodism, was starting to organize things for over here in the newly formed United States of America, he had this crazy idea that women could preach. And a lot of people were like, John, it's only the 1700s. Slow down. What makes you think a woman can preach? And John said, have you met my mother? But People were like, no, John, if you do this, it's over. It's over, John. You can't, you can't do this. This is too radical, too crazy. It's fine to be preaching out in the fields and standing up in windows and on boxes, but do not be putting women in a pulpit. Because you know what? If you put them in the pulpit, they might tell us what to do. And so John went, okay, well, here's the problem. We have a lot of people who have come to Christ and a lot of people who have been transformed by God's grace, and they need the exhortation that comes from being encouraged when they gather for worship and they need people to preach and teach the word of God. And so I don't have enough guys to do that. What am I going to do? And so John Wesley, in infinite wisdom, said, fine, I won't license them to preach. I'll license them to exhort. And you might go, what is the difference? Well, when you're licensed to exhort, you can encourage you can testify. You can tell people how awesome they are. You just can't tell them what to do. Not that any of you need to be told what to do anyway, but that's what the deal was. You couldn't tell them what to do. But guess what? Once you let them get up here, good luck stopping them. You know, some people say that there's a woman to blame. But Jesus knows that it's his fault because he called us. It's his fault. And so Jesus said, I'm going to equip you. I'm going to give you what you need. But sometimes even people who are called to preaching and teaching need to be exhorted. They need to be told that they can do it. They need to be seen as valuable. And they need people to go, I see God's gift in you. They need that. And if you don't do that, then people will never take their place. My heart, until the day that I die, will break when I think about Shirley from my last church, who came when I was licensed. And she drove through the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel, which when you're in your 80s, that alone is like a pilgrimage to Mecca. And she went through the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel at night that she might come to the service of ordering of ministry to see me 
her assistant pastor licensed for ministry and received my reverend title. And I remember after the worship service, when we were all greeting each other, I saw her, and she came up to me and she hugged me, and she said to me, you know, I always thought that that was supposed to be me. But when I was your age, women couldn't do that. Women couldn't do it. And she was a professional storyteller. She had been a teacher. She had been a shepherd in overseeing um, all kinds of different schools, including at one point my church's preschool. She had done all these things, but she was told that she could not come here. And she believed it. She believed it. But then, she who encouraged me told me that she knew now that even though she didn't get to do it, that others would. So yes, the church needs shepherds and exhortationists. The church needs cheerleaders. The church needs people who will look at us within the church and say, you know what? Yeah, you're a sinner, and you may have really messed up, but I still love you, and I'm here with you, and we are going to build this kingdom. Amen. The church needs people who will override what the world says, where the world says you are unlovable, unforgivable, and you should not be listened to, heard, seen, or cared about. The church needs to override that, and exhortationists do that. And shepherds help to bring the lost back home and help us to realize that all of us fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us do. But together, we are able to build the kingdom here. And those gifts are what build the kingdom. We can't just go, well, you know what? If you don't have the gifts to be clergy, then your gifts don't matter because let me tell you, your gifts are just as important, if not more, than what clergy have. Because there's one of me, and look at all of you. So your gifts are vital. So vital. And even though it was a clergy person who saw the book of Acts in my life, even though it was a clergy person, all kinds of lay persons had had an effect in that clergy person's life who then had a transformative effect in mine. We are all connected, not just by Jesus Christ and the grace of God, but by our gifts which we use. Our gifts are necessary. You were created in God's image, but how you live into that image when you use your gifts. God hasn't just given you a piece of God's self in the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God has given you power and authority, the ability to bring things into this world that only God can do by giving you gifts. And some of that is just encouragement. You know, some of the most unlikely Preachers, teachers, evangelists, and successful disciple-makers in the Bible were completely discounted by the world. You remember when Jesus went to the well and sent all his apostles into the town, and he's hanging out by the well, and a woman comes out in the heat and the hot of the day. She comes out by herself because she's too ashamed to come out in the morning when all the other women come, because she doesn't want to be seen and ridiculed by them. So she comes out in the heat of the day, to gather water by herself. And she comes out, and when she thought she would be alone, here is Jesus. And he has this conversation with her. And he tells her that he knows who she is, but he also knows about her sin. And he knows that she's had not one, not two, not three, four, and she's living with somebody else 
relationships. And so Jesus recognizes it, but Jesus gives her the chance, and he encourages her. He gives her exhortation. And she runs back into that village, and she says to them, you have got to come here and meet this guy. He knows who I am. Come and see. And that's when those people get to meet Jesus. Because he saw something in her. And he encouraged her, and he told her. And she used it. Your gift is Christ-enlivened. There is room for you. That's who we are. And you need to find your gift. You need to recognize your gift. And then you need to use it unabashedly. Because this is who God is equipping you to be. And today, as we come before this table here, God is not just nourishing your spirit and forgiving you of your sins. God is equipping you to be who God has called you to be. And some of you will be shepherds, and some of you will be exhortationists, and some of you will be all kinds of other gifts that we have yet to explore together. But every single gift is needed, is beloved and precious, just like you are beloved and precious. And so we use these gifts, not for our glory, Lord, not for ours, but for God's, because we are building a kingdom here. Christ inaugurated it at the day of his incarnational birth, but it has been built by countless Christians who dared to use their gifts, not just for themselves, not just for each other, but for those that the world had already rejected and cast aside. For them, for all, because every single human being that was, is, or ever will be is beloved in God's sight. And those gifts are to help all of us know, to know, to know in the fiber of our being that we can overcome our sin because Christ has made it so. And if you don't use your gifts, there are going to be people who are going to wonder could I ever have been anything? Or is my life just meaningless? There are going to be people who are going to believe the falsehoods that have been put out about that they cannot be loved and they are not worthy. There are people who are going to believe what the world says, that those people in the church are crazy and irrational. They just want your money and your membership. They're going to believe the lies because your gifts share the truth. So don't squander them, but use them because lives are dependent upon it. And God has equipped you to do it. Thanks be to God, to the one who not only gifts to us, but gives us the courage and the confidence to use those gifts. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.